Hello, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. On today's episode, I am talking with Andy Chen and Wakas Wade of Isometric Studio, which is a studio in New York City that focuses on design that promotes inclusion, equality, and progress. And we use that as a lens to talk about design discourse and the role of criticism in contemporary design practices. Andy and Wakas were the visiting critics here at MICA in December, and I sat down with them while they were here in Baltimore to talk about their backgrounds in both uh, sociology and architecture and how that influences their graphic design work and the way that they think about graphic design. Uh, And we talk about the role of writing and criticism in their work and how a robust design discourse can shine a light on often overlooked aspects of the design profession. This was a a really, really interesting conversation. They have a a unique point of view, and sometimes uh, the two of them actually disagree on things. And so it was fun to talk with them and and kind of debate the role of criticism and this type of discourse and how it influences their work. Um, They are very smart and interesting. This was a truly generous conversation. I'm really excited to share it with you. So here is my conversation with Andy Chen and Wakas Jawade. You know, I thought it would be nice if you could just both kind of introduce yourselves and kind of what you do first, and then from there we'll go into kind of how you got to doing those things. So my name is Andy Chen. I am a graphic designer. I started by studying sociology, which was unrelated to graphic design, but then found that I had a deep interest in how visual culture it informs uh, so much of what we do as human beings in society. Right? And, and so being able to affect visual culture, to me, felt like a much more active way of creating sort of positive social consequences than simply sort of being a lawyer, so mm-hmm. forth, a normal advocacy kind of job. And it also seemed a lot more interesting. Yeah. So then I studied graphic design, and yeah, that's what I run a graphic design studio. So when you... Uh, sorry to, to like, but I'm curious if like, I have two quick questions there. When you started in sociology, what were you thinking kind of going into it before you switched to graphic design you wanted to do? So I went into college not knowing what I was supposed to be studying because every normal Asian child either needs to become a a lawyer or a doctor because Mm -hmm. those are the kinds of things that our parents know to be successful. And so Mm -hmm. the, the thought was that I would either study political science or I would study something like that, and become a lawyer because I was no good at math and science. Yeah. And throughout college, you know, there's a very big quandary for me because I didn't really want to become a lawyer. I didn't really like the idea of sort of, you know, having to create a lot of paperwork. And there's, of course, like the dramatic flourish of people who are actually litigators, but that's a, a huge minority, and it's, right. a, of course, not realistic. Mm-hmm. So I, I had a good friend in college. Her name was Tiffany Way, and she was studying to be an architect. And she approached me at one point about wanting to start a graphic design studio on the campus at Princeton because there was no official curriculum, um, there was no program. And she essentially, uh, you know, she was the creative side or something, and I was more of trying to figure out the business logistics of it. Mm. And we started this small little graphic design agency and got a whole bunch of what are equivalent of student freelancers to work together on poster projects. And that was really exciting and interesting because uh, I started to understand the relationship among business, uh, visual production, and social impact. Mm-hmm. And the design was horrible. It was pretty mediocre for a very long time. And of course, there were some talented people that came through the, the design agency that made some really nice looking work that got recognized. But throughout, it was just a testing ground for a whole yeah. bunch of new visual ideas, for me at least, who didn't have any experience. And then somebody at some point thought to, to tell me, maybe you could do this as a profession. You know, oh, interesting. Okay. Why wouldn't you apply for a fellowship um, to study design instead of applying to become a lawyer? Hmm. And that was a huge, you know, it was a huge change for me. I didn't realize that this was something you could actually do or that I could actually do. Yeah. But then it, it seemed intriguing, so I applied for several fellowships, got one in London, studied at the Royal College of Art for a year um, through a program at what's called the Helen Hamlin Center that deals with graphic design problems and, uh, through, and then have, with a social impact 
So I worked on a project that had to do with older people and sexually transmitted infections and how to communicate mm -hmm. with them in a way that destigmatizes sex among older people. And the same process I learned in sociology of interviewing people and photographing them, documenting their lives, and then translating that to a kind of design output that was a communication vehicle for some of these ideas. And that was an amazing process because basically it's a, become the framework for how we run our studio today. But that's not, I mean, you just set up like my next three questions, so <laughs> that's, that's perfect. What about you? Um, I uh, grew up in uh, Karachi, Pakistan, and uh, we traveled a lot. And uh, from the beginning, I knew that I wanted to be an artist. Oh. And uh, at the same time, I was also interested in physics and literature and math. And so uh, one of the transformative experiences of my life was to go to India when I was 16 and for a peace conference and meet people there and discover that the history that I've learned and uh, you know the worldview that I have, including the religion that I, that I was part of, uh, is one of many. And uh, there are people that exist that, uh, that are you know really wonderful, amazing people, but may hold totally different views. Right. So it really opened up my mind to thinking about how whatever I do affects the world and brings people together. So I ended up at Princeton for undergrad, and uh, I bounced around many different areas of study, and I discovered architecture, mm -hmm. and I fell in love with it because it was everything in one. You had uh, this yeah. kind of yeah. last remaining generalist profession where you can be an artist and a scientist and a uh, you know economist and whatever. Um, and so I did that, and I really wanted to become an architect, so I went uh, to get a master's in that. And uh, I interned in various places, including Asana in Tokyo and uh, OMA in Rotterdam mm -hmm. and also in Paris. And then I landed my dream job, which was at Skidmore, Owings & Merrill in New York oh, City. Yeah. And we were designing a super tall tower in China. And at that point, I felt a little bit like I, I stepped back and questioned whether I wanted to continue down that path because I felt like I was a small part of a big operation and then I also mm -hmm. couldn't control the end product or the value that I was giving mm -hmm. back to the communities in these medium-sized Chinese cities. And so at the same time, this opportunity presented itself. I had known Andy for nine, eight or nine years and his business partner was moving on. So then we joked about it. And we are partners in life as well. So we joked about working together, and then I saw this as an amazing kind of detour oh, to okay. kind of step into a new direction. And the goal for us was to bring the different disciplines together. So had you not had you done any uh, quote unquote graphic design? I was part of the student design agency. Okay, I had been exposed to graphic design throughout these years. And I had had a lot of unofficial input on Andy's, okay. you know, thesis <laughs> yeah, yeah. and projects. But no, I, I had no disciplinary uh, formal education mm -hmm. in design. And even when I joined Isometric, the first few months were very difficult because I would come up with an idea that I thought was amazing. But then yeah. I would learn that, you know, it's been done many years ago and it, th this is what it means. And so I, there was a big uh, uh, learning curve and I had to learn very quickly. And it was not as easy yeah. as it seemed. I'm, something I'm curious about, um, and hearing this actually is even more, I'm even more curious about it, but I'm interested in how both of your individual previous professional backgrounds have influenced how you think about Isometric. So Isometric was founded with the ethic that it would be a studio that cared a lot about social issues. Mm -hmm. But the problem with that sort of thrust of that argument is that there is already a movement in graphic design that's designed for social change, mm -hmm. in quotation marks. And I think both of us have doubts about that movement mm -hmm. because it's very sociology light. It's very, yeah. it uses some of the tools of ethnography as a kind of overlay on design process. And then there are firms out there like IDEO that have patented a kind of Post-it note mm -hmm. design process, uh, sort of soliciting impact from uh, input from users and kind of designing around their needs. And of course, uh, you would want to do that. Of course, you would want to solicit input. Of course, you want to find clever and interesting ways of getting people to participate in the design process. I think that all of that is valid. The challenge is when that becomes a proxy 
for creating work and having substance that is about sort of the original act of making design, which comes from sort of a, a deep soulful interpretation of the information at hand, right? right? And much in the tradition of Pushpin Studio, Milton Glaser, Paul Scher, there's an act of creation that has to go on that has to elevate all this data mm -hmm. above, I think, what is the quotidian kind of um, uh, visual output that it normally has. Yeah. And when there's a process that kind of like so is meant to speak for itself and that becomes an automatic translation of whatever the style of the day is into graphic design, I, I find it lacking. And so that's why we started the studio with the intent mm -hmm. that we work with any client, corporations, startups. It, we're not afraid of crass commercialism. Instead, we embrace oh, basically clients from any walk of life. And of course, nonprofits and uh, educational institutions tend to find us really appealing. But we work with everybody across the gamut, healthcare corporations, et cetera, jewelry companies, to try to find where we can create positive impact. Mm -hmm. Because those you know, sort of uh, people who may not consider these narratives are the, those are the ones that are most vulnerable to critique. Right. Right? They're the ones that are perhaps unintentionally promulgating narratives that are sexist or, mm -hmm. or homophobic or perhaps sort of just like increase income inequality, for example, in real estate. And uh, we can get them to look critically at their values because nobody wants to be uh, accused right. of of not promoting something yeah, positive true. socially and not really even big especially big corporations yeah. they have a lot yeah. to lose and so uh, we position ourselves as kind of a generalist firm taking on basically any kind of client that's willing to work with us but uh, have a core of a desire to think about what authentic inclusion looks like what mining narratives of marginalized people look like especially when it comes to causes that are not directly sort of, you know, in the social cause, building, saving the world category. Yeah, that's interesting. What about architecture? How does that, how, how, how has your architecture education influenced how you think about design, graphic design? So um, initially I used to have a lot of trouble answering that question because it wasn't as clear to me. But more and more, I begin to see. Uh, I have begun to see many, um, you know, connections. Mm -hmm. So, just kind of on a broad level, thinking about how the process of design, uh, how we go about tackling a problem and and working through it uh, with the tools of graphic design, I think that uh, at OMA I learned that every project was always had to be turned on its head. Right. You know, if somebody comes in and asks for a library, you're going to give them something that doesn't look like a library at mm -hmm. all, and it's mm -hmm. questioning the very idea of libraries. Mm -hmm. And uh, same thing with theater and, other, and house and whatnot. So we do try to, with every project, we do try to question the assumptions and mm. kind of articulate, re-articulate the project in a way that makes it exciting for us, that creates some kind of friction. Yeah. So that even if it is the you know the healthcare company or the real estate company or or an exciting nonprofit, you know, uh, we can make it even more exciting so that we get motivated to work on it. So that's a conceptual kind of uh, turning mm -hmm. the problem on its head. And then what I learned at Sana was, um, and I was really baffled when I arrived there and I saw these <laughs> like uh, you know team meetings where they would sit in silence and look at an architectural model for minutes. And then, no know, talking at all, just... No talking, just uh, for a few minutes, just in silence. And they would just kind of turn their heads and look at it yeah. from different directions. And then uh, Sajima-san would make a comment, and then Nishizawa-san would like literally sit uh, on the chair, like perch on the chair and start whistling. <laughs> and that moment of reflection was so important because then whatever came out of their mouths was actually very considered, very thought right. chosen words. And one of the and uh, many of the meetings would be held in Japanese, but then they would uh, translate for us. And they said one of the things I remember was they said, "Of course, the building has to work functionally, right? But what's more important is that it has to be kawaii, that it has to have this kind of uh, seduction or you know, uh, uh, cuteness to it that draws people in." Um, so we do we try. I mean, in the United States, working in New York, we work on a very fast-paced schedule, and the projects move really fast. But we try to find moments to pause and reflect. Um, so that, those are kind of two conceptual uh, ways mm -hmm. that architecture informs it. Um, 
in practical terms, often when we're designing websites or apps, we will do a program diagram very similar to a building where mm -hmm. we will determine um, what are the various components that need to exist and what is the virtual journey through these components. Right. And so we right. will diagram that out almost like an architectural diagram and then build it out from there. Um, and so yeah, those are some of those ways. Yes. Increasingly, a lot of our work is in the built environment. That's been very interesting for me because uh, though I had worked with Paula Scherer and she does a lot of that kind of work, yeah. I had never really directly been responsible for the production of that kind of work. And it, w it was fascinating to me to test the idea of the surface, which is the mm -hmm. kind of design, and in architectural space, to say that you have to think about all the approaches, how the, uh, you know, it, the material, the way that people are going to encounter it, the scale, it's right. all different, right? And to me, Vakas uh, has been such an amazing resource to, to kind of get, even though I, we've been together forever, <laughs> I've never, uh, I never yeah. thought that there would be these deep practical questions about yeah. how you make something happen that I just have no clue about because right. I haven't been educated in that way. And, and to me, it expands the boundaries of what I consider graphic design to be. Yeah. And, and it, it's super exciting because you have to think very carefully about um, longevity, which is not necessarily true for most of graphic mm -hmm, design, mm -hmm. as well as the impact it has sort of passively on the way people experience space. To say that graphic design has, can tend to be somewhat confrontational, and like the, what's lauded is uh, bright, bold colors and new kinds of typographic expression and so forth. And that may not be suitable for all cases, particularly in built environments where things are supposed to be more subtle, mm -hmm. or restrained, or permanent, or not compete with you know what else the program is happening in the space. Yeah. And, and I yeah. think um, that has made me a much more considerate designer, and a much more careful um, yeah. person. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting. I, wanna, I actually wanted to talk about architecture for a little bit. And I don't mean to put you on the spot, but um, I'm very fascinated with OMA in general, and I think um, Rem Coolhouse has influenced how I think about design kind of very deeply. Um, I don't know much about architecture. I read a lot about architecture, but you know, I've never studied it, so, I, so I'm approaching it from an outsider. But um, I feel like OMA and Rem Coolhouse specifically have a very theoretical approach, and you kind of mentioned that of you know, turning the project on its head but then architecture in a, in a broad sense and like the whole profession has such a, seems to have such a rich discourse around, you know, criticism and theory. And so I don't know, I don't know really what my question is, but I guess, um, you know, how has that kind of discourse and how has kind of that theoretical model of OMA manifested itself in your work? And then second part of the question is, um, why do you think architecture has such a kind of rich discourse around it or a seemingly rich discourse around it? Yeah, this is a question we battle with almost every day. Like, and our biggest complaint is, you know, why doesn't graphic design have the same kind of discourse <laughs> as architecture does? Yeah. And where does that come from? That's come and, up in so many of these interviews that I've done also, right. by the way. Yeah, and um, I don't... Uh, I don't have, really have an answer. I think that architecture as a field has existed for a much longer time. And mm -hmm. so uh, it used, I mean, I think that uh, any kind of creative endeavor has the potential to have a, uh, a cycle where there's the process of creation and then there's the process of analysis and critique. Mm -hmm. And then the critique feeds back into the creation. I think with graphic design, uh, it's been conflated a lot with uh, commercial advertising. Yeah, and so people feel that it is too crass. There is no, there is no value there. It is a low art. It is not a thoughtful endeavor. And so a lot of uh, academic programs resist even admitting graphic design to be uh, a subject that is taught. For example, at Princeton, you know, they, there was a lot of resistance before they finally. They finally admitted that this was worthy of uh, intellectual inquiry. And so I think that there is uh, some time that, and uh, work that's needed to bring out uh, the theoretical questions that are related to graphic design and how it impacts the world. Uh, architecture is a very, very slow and ancient profession. 
So even though you know the cars and people's clothes will evolve and change, and you see old photographs, the architecture that seems to be like it's been there forever and yeah. will stay for a yeah. long time. So I think that's part of the reason why a lot of the conversation really builds up. Um, I think another aspect to consider is that architects, at least the intellectual academic architects, really view the discipline as a continuum. So all new projects are built on previous projects. There isn't a fear of copying or getting inspired. Um, you know, the, uh, the, the ancient uh, Greek temple is used as a template for new kinds of advancements. Uh, and there's the problem of uh, the envelope or the problem <coughs> of the entrance vestibule mm -hmm. or whatever, you know, which keeps getting built on. So there is a higher level of, of a disciplinary uh, knowledge that, is, that, is, that continues even when the various manifestations uh, change and evolve and some work and some don't. And then there's a whole uh, other aspect of architecture, which is the unbuilt paper architecture. Right. That is also part of right. the uh, critical uh, and theoretical discourse. So I think there's a question about the legitimacy of something that is so ephemeral and mass-produced. And that's what graphic design has typically been uh, sort of associated with, particularly because being, there's a tradition of like, trade school or even high schools, technical high schools, offering graphic design as a curriculum or a certificate that you can get. You don't need to have any kinds of, of rigorous theoretical education um, in order to get a some kind of degree in graphic design or even to practice graphic design. Mm -hmm. All you need, mm -hmm. right. ostensibly, is the software. And that has been the kind of way, especially in the United States, that it's been seen. And so I think there's a much greater gamut of what is considered graphic design and also what is considered um, part of the graphic design profession. And so that leads to sort of a, a classist distinction where architecture tends to, to be acknowledged by and also the province of people who are elite and wealthy mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and people who can a commission buildings, pay for buildings, uh, yeah, and be part of that uh, right. kind of network to to be involved in those kinds of projects. Whereas graphic design, your nephew can do it, right? right. Or like right. my uh, my secretary does some graphic design, right? Like you, you hear that often. It's not as derisive as it sounds, and what it means is that there's an opportunity there. Everybody kind of knows it, even though they yeah. don't know yeah. it. And I see that as a positive thing, right? You know, because and then you can find the right institutions or whatever to support more rigorous kind of work that does have you know, value beyond its visual appearance and beyond styling. And that's probably true for architecture as well because some things are considered architecture like picking furniture and matching colors that are, are not really ha have to do with argument and space. Mm -hmm. right? So I, I think that um, graphic design has a long way to evolve that, that architecture has already had that kind of evolution and that testing ground. And, and the graphic design education kind of I think needs to catch up in that way by seeking to educate people in ways that are not just about sort of graphic design reflecting on itself as a discipline, trying to legitimate itself relative to the discourse of other disciplines. Um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, the, and this argument has been made, meaning, uh, what I don't mean is the argument that has made in Looking Closer books, where uh, mm -hmm. the Looking Closer books kind of, there was an argument about, well, graphic design needs its own meta discourse mm -hmm. uh, about graphic design. I don't think that's necessarily true, because yeah. it hasn't been particularly helpful. What has come out of that is uh, the production of design in academic institutions that is for designers only. Right. And that kind of exclusion of, uh, or desire for something that is outside of culture mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. or outside yep. outside of uh, the social implications of what <laughs> we do or the economics of what yeah. we do is a desire to have an academic removal, just like you would have in any, any other field. And presumably that is going to be more rigorous, right? Because it, there's an investigation of what then design means. But the problem- Don't you think that's important? To sure. Have? I have no problem with it by itself but I, I think that you should have that plus um uh, the social context and cultural context yeah and, yeah and and that uh, they need to be seen as mutually constitutive rather than robbing each other of some kind of you know importance mm -hmm. um, and that th these like sort of little ghetto programs ghettoized programs of like uh, like design for social change here and graphic design yeah, over there yeah. that is poisonous because it um 
it implies that oh SVA is the commercial school and you go there because like you want to be a it's like a finishing school mm-hmm. and Yale is the academic one mm-hmm. and RISD is somewhere in between with semiotic theory. These, these are unimportant distinctions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I think we should be open minded as a field. Yeah. I think that we should push towards have bringing in as much theory from other fields because we are a generalist discipline as possible. Feminist theory, literary theory, which as which has already mm-hmm. been explored by the McCoys, you know, mm-hmm. and, and uh, social theory economic theory, scientific theory. Mm-hmm. I think that we should be interested in everything because yeah. our clients are. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah. and that, <laughs> and that w- when we are, uh, we'll be able to more rigorously develop models of design practice that will live up to the, the desire to be something like architecture. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm looking at my notes and you've set up all the rest of my questions in those two responses. So let me, like figure out how I want to like kind of parse this out because I think I agree 100% with everything that you just said. And that's a lot of what I've been thinking about and trying to parse out. And so um, I want to start with kind of connecting two things. And, and one is, you know, that kind of rich architecture discourse and then the kind of like academic discourse and something I've, I've been thinking about a lot and, and trying to pick apart a little bit is that architecture has a rich, theoretical discourse, but then for a long time, every major newspaper also had an architecture critic that was for a general audience. Um, And so I guess, you know, let's talk a little bit about kind of design criticism and discourse and and audience. And what is the, something I've been thinking about a lot is the value of the discourse for the profession, which I think is important, but then also for people who are not designers and maybe don't, maybe know the term graphic design, but don't actually know what it is. And so I'm curious about the value that you see in kind of both of those conversations that could and should be happening, or maybe should be happening. I, I guess I'll start with, uh, <laughs> I think we have different opinions yeah. on this. Okay, interesting. <laughs> so, okay. my opinion is that standalone academic discourses are boring uh-huh. and exclusive. Meaning that if I'm going to comment on graphic design by MetaHaven that's been produced exclusively for the consumption of other graphic designers and or architects, or the Lars Mueller kind of way, I'm going to get really Dexter Sinister. I value that they exist in the profession. I strongly do. And I believe that they have uh, fundamentally transformed the profession in a very positive way. At the same time, I would like to see design criticism about mainstream subjects. Mm-hmm. And the reason is that it connects to a broader audience. Mm -hmm. So, for example, my example would be the recent movie Moonlight by director Barry Jenkins. It's been lauded as a film masterpiece for a number of reasons. But the critic A.O. Scott uh, of the New York Times, to me, that was a masterwork in itself, the piece of criticism. Very short. The piece that he wrote about it? Yeah, it was great. Beautiful, Mm -hmm. where he talked about how it's at once a film about black queer identity, but it's not specifically about that because it fails to uh, to fall into normal traps of right. reducing people into mm-hmm. symbols. And instead, it forges what he cited at Hart Crane, the poet, called infinite consanguinity, the ability to be connected to other people in, uh, in a way that transcends space and time. And, and to me, just such a beautiful description of yeah. that film and also a critical comment on how it performs socially culturally. So what I like about it is that it bears some degree of the sentiment of the film. And some people are very afraid of emotion and sentimentality and describing emotion because it's worrying. But as kind of, you know, critics like Jessica Halpern and showed Mm -hmm. us, desire, emotion, these things are important to be critical. Mm -hmm. And when we do, uh, it automatically connects to a wider audience Mm -hmm. because human beings have emotions. The wider audience of human beings have emotions. And we're no longer just talking about, like, um, oh, is the quality of this typeface, like the counterforms, and, and, okay, is it, um, you know, what does it respond to within design history? Like, those are important questions, but they've been asked and somewhat they've been tried to answer what is the important question now is we live in a Trump era where a lot of people feel really scared. You have major conflict around the world that seems irresolvable. Uh, you have uh, the information is moving faster than mm-hmm. ever before. Mm-hmm. So you see police shootings of black people on a regular basis. 
how do we confront these questions as graphic designers? And I don't mean that everybody has to do the work that we do by any stretch of the imagination. I don't yeah. believe that everybody has to all of a sudden do socially good work. No. Instead, you should have a stake in it. Yeah. You yeah, should yeah, care yeah. about it mm -hmm. in some ways, and you should believe that you are uh, a, a conduit um, to communicate some of your, at least your own values, if not the values of the people you represent. Right. Right. Well, I think uh, the Moonlight is an interesting example because the review that you mentioned is uh, very beautifully written, uh, but to a large extent, it focuses on the effects of the movie, right? It doesn't take us behind the scenes to talk about the magic that uh, is involved in creating the film, right. you know, mm -hmm. the kind of camera mechanics. that is used, yeah. the mechanics. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the uh, how it relates to previous films and how, you know, there's just a whole uh, criticism that could be written on the use of color, the use of the camera. Yeah. And the it has been written, but not by him. And how it is uh, building on the work that is coming from mm -hmm. previous filmmakers. And so when filmmakers go and see that movie, they see something totally different, right? Sure. And when they read the New York Times uh, review, uh, they think that it is written for a general audience. Mm -hmm. Now that is, yes. of course, very important, but at the same time, I think that as a discipline, if graphic design is going to advance this knowledge of the behind-the-scenes magic, so more and more people can really understand the tools of the trade and also understand if an image is used in a specific way, what does that convey and what effect that has on um, you know, mm -hmm. human beings, uh, that can really benefit the discipline. And sometimes that is a very close conversation that only happens in universities and mm -hmm. only with you know knowledgeable critics. And I think that architecture has that because yeah. uh, when we talk about architectural criticism, we are really looking at the 1% of you know architects who are engaged in that. Right. Right. Uh, there's a huge industry, building industry that doesn't really care about this, but that somehow will get influenced by the ideas that are generated in mm -hmm. these conversations. So, so, yeah, and I think uh, you talk about Jeff Kipnis often, how right. he talks about architecture as creating a full emotional effects through form, I'm paraphrasing. Yes. And I, I think that both those sides are equally as important. The idea of effects and form, and it comes up in mm -hmm. Dillerska video Renfro's work, for example, the special effects machine, mm -hmm. uh, and the idea that you can create affect with formal devices. And that's basically all there is to the production of design. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm, it's kind of a, an understatement, but <laughs> but, but uh, that's really interesting then because both sides are important. That idea of what are the mechanics add up to this, and why do are we so afraid of revealing kind of trade secrets? Uh, there yeah. aren't really any. It's right. That, it's that if you combine uh, this set of materials, it uh, produces a certain set of emotional effects mm -hmm. through cultural connotations or through social connotations. And the, the prism of how all these things happen, I think, is incredibly important to analyze, as Vikas is saying, basically, as a kind of teaching and instructive um, educational response to design. At the same time, I think that making that available um, to a broader audience, whether it's the mechanics or the effects or the social meaning, I think that that's uh, critical. And so it's like there's these various levels of theory building, which are present in other fields, for example, ethnography. Uh, mm -hmm. um, and, and sociology, basically how you tier an argument, right? Like that, that you talk about the mechanics of how the, the field work was done. Then you talk about um, what are the effects of you know, using certain kind of mechanics over others. And then you theorize about, okay, what does it mean to this particular social problem? For example, inequality in inner cities. And, and you, then you have opposing theories that are reconciled or synthesized in a new theory. Mm -hmm. And that is the kind of theory building that I was taught. Unfortunately, that level of rigor is just simply not existent in graphic design. Uh, you can go through whole critiques in schools without uh, touching on any greater body of theory. And that, that to me is sad, because I believe that the students are uh, fully capable of doing it. And, yeah. and I, don't, I, I don't believe that um, it's really taught in that way. The equivalent of graphic design theory classes are sort of reading Lev Manovich and like Yorlani, and all these are important figures, uh, but there's kind of like is yeah. anybody truly building a, a, a theoretical platform for uh, in the way that other fields have? Yeah, I mean, that's something that I've been thinking about a lot the more of these interviews that I've done is that kind of graphic design, 
let me think let me think exactly how to phrase this because I'm I, I kind of fall on both sides and it like depends kind of what kind of day I'm having of which one I I fall on but um, you know I think design theory or design criticism really gets interesting when it starts connecting with things outside of the profession um, and you know especially in a Trump world I feel like graphic design graphic designers need to be talking about these things in the context of the world that we're living in now um, and so I don't know I don't know if I have a question there other than just kind of reconfirming but, what you were saying but it's but, not mutually exclusive right yeah. I, I still believe that you know designers can write about like what it means to draw a line from left to right rather than right to left you know, yeah. and you can uh, <laughs> yeah. you, you can write about that I don't, I don't have any problems with that being part of the discourse um, and you know what a particular use of color means, or um, what does it mean to use letter space typography that is illegible? Like these questions that came up in the '90s. Right. Uh, right. And, but I found that to be a rather facile era. That kind of Stephen Heller wrote the Cult of the Ugly, and he took it back. Yeah. yeah <laughs> and yeah. Uh, and fine. And, and then there are all sorts of new models around like designer as entrepreneur, designer as author, whatever that means. And like, why are yeah. we struggling to try to define what graphic design is? Right. Why? Why? I feel like that's a pointless endeavor at this yeah. point. <laughs> like yeah. that, that you don't do not have to create provinces uh, and kind of try to sequester your particular mode of expertise and area of expertise. Instead, I think we should be generous to all different people making all different things that they call graphic design, mm -hmm. and that we should address them on the level that they're talking about and the subject that they're talking about. And that should be a mode that's available for critique, very similar to studying English or. Uh, Romance languages or whatever, mm -hmm. you would not expect that. Um, that was, like I had a professor who who's an amazing theorist, and she writes about Asian American literature. But she also brings film criticism and architectural criticism into her work, and she's worked with architectural critics like Beatrice Colomina, mm -hmm. writing about the skin and Adolf Loos yeah. and, yeah. and and uh, how that affects um, her reading of a particular kind of literature. Oh, interesting. And to me, that that approach is what graphic design should be about. Because if graphic yeah. design is basically about designing everything else, <laughs> right, then, right. then you need a clearly multidisciplinary approach. Mm -hmm. You need to be widely read in the fields that your design addresses. Uh, and I think that that should be a requirement. You know? yeah, and, yeah, and, so, yeah. and so when I, I'm not saying that you know, you know we're perfect and we're like this is what we do with every project. I mean, there's time constraints on everything. Right. But I do think we try really hard to get the core of what it's about. And when we, especially when we have academic clients or educational institution clients, they demand a level of rigor. Mm -hmm. And so we go in and we show that we have thought about uh, the, the greater theoretical underpinnings of their work, whether it's on spreading international culture or the feminist movement or the LGBT movement. We look at the history. We look at the history particularly cited to the area that we're working in. We think about uh, what the theoretical argument that is being made is. Yeah. Uh, we bring in theory that they may not be acquainted with. And when we show them visual form that's related to those theories, or at least our interpretation yeah. of it, and, and to me, it's a way of building new theories that have uh, visual right. substance to them. Right. So, and you actually do that, like you will present those types that's of all things. We you know, we, we don't go in with like a mood board. I mean, we can't. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, basically, yeah. in terms of our 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 way of doing everything yeah. in the world, we have a really hard time with like mood boards or like typographic collages or like a grid of like where you lay in terms of all these different yeah, brands yeah. and a, you know, <laughs> two by two matrix. Right. We can't do that. It's like pseudoscientific to us. Mm -hmm. And and also we're frankly not experts on how you should market your product. Mm -hmm. Instead, we view design as an intellectual argument. Yeah. And for it to be an argument, you need to know what's come before. And you need to know how yeah, to like, yeah, you're that. turning the, the argument on its head or um, framing it in a, a way to look at you it in a different direction. You also need to be able to articulate why not to do it exactly. uh, another way. <laughs> right, so right. So in some sense, we are trying to move away move away from this uh, the way of talking about design as nice or not nice that yeah. we've seen a lot <laughs> yeah. and try to go into the realm of why or mm -hmm. why not. And that, I think, involves some level of uh, theory from either design or other related fields. Yeah, I love that. I mean, that because that's that hits on on two things that I'm really interested in. One, I love I love the design as an intellectual argument, and that's kind of part of you know, kind of a couple levels down, but part of my thesis and what I'm doing here is that all design is critical and mm -hmm. theoretical in some way, and that can manifest itself 
you know, with like a knowledge of history, but it can also manifest itself with that surface layer also. And I really like the why, uh, or ni nice and not nice and more into why, because I think that kind of hits in the, in the kind of criticism that I'm hoping to kind of find and bring together through all of this and that, you know, there is this kind of depth uh, to what we do. I mean, would you say, so one question I have for you is that I, I often struggle with the same question you struggled in 2006. <laughs> because in some ways, isometric has a house style. Like we <laughs> like, like shifting lines of typography. Yeah. We like um, like some gestures from postmodernism. Like we like glittery looking typography. But, um, but we're also not stylists, I don't think, right? Mm -hmm. And so that, I think, raises an important theoretical question that I have had a hard time um, struggling with because if graphic design is supposed to be generalist and you're supposed to be able to give your form to all sorts of different clients and different ideas, um, then it, you know this question of personal style and personal investment uh, becomes increasingly important um, mm. to, to forming a, a quote-unquote critical design practice. Like, uh, because if you do have a personal stake in it and you want to put some of your mark uh, as an artist in the work, um, can it still be critical in its function as it addresses a whole bunch of different audiences and clients? I think that none of the work that we produce is any individual's like, you know, style. Mm -hmm. It is a uh, result of a conversation that happens in the studio that mm -hmm. involves the two of us, but also our designers, Nicole and Jihei. Um, I think that one way to think about the work that we do is that it's not postmodern. Because postmodern was um, a critique of modernism, mm -hmm. and it was about mm -hmm. rejection, and it, it was about poking fun. And uh, postmodernism, I think, led all the way up to the 2008 economic collapse. And then something new emerges. And I think that uh, what we look back to as a studio, I think you will agree, is modernism, which is the early 20th century. Uh, for the first time, art and design becomes political. Mm -hmm. And there is this hope and aspiration that because of the tools of the Industrial Revolution, um, housing and art and design can be brought to the common person. Mm -hmm. And of course, there were a lot of flaws with it, a lot of problems, and it led to a lot of catastrophes. But this desire was there, and uh, art for the first time becomes political, and Benjamin writes about that. Um, and now we've gone through that cycle of postmodernism, mm -hmm. and what we are seeing now is a kind of new modernism. I don't know what it's going to be called. Well, I People I, in the future uh, will decide. I, I like to call, but, it, um, call it like kind of eclectic constructivism. And and I because I kind of look to the work of Abbott Miller as a model for our studio, uh, he has kind of digested and created and Michael Beirut every design style that has come through history and kind of you know we yeah. outputted it with his own aesthetic lens and discernment. Oh, um, interesting. And, yeah. And so that's kind of what we do. We kind of we show benchmarks of others designers' work uh, or historical work that is relevant to a particular project, mm -hmm. and then we reproduce some of that form but with the intent of the people in the studio, right? Not any, like Picasso said, no one person has an aesthetic say. Instead, I will say that the word eclectic is meant as an insult in architecture <laughs> because it means oh, you're, really? not, you're not consistent, you are eclectic. Um, and so someone like Philip Johnson is derided with using this kind uh, of um, yeah. euphemism. You know, work is really eclectic and that's <laughs> supposed to be insulting. But are you okay so, with that? I don't think we're eclectic in the sense that I don't think we are random or all over the place. Uh -huh. I think that if you look back at our work, there is a, a lot of consistency to it. But eclectic just means drawing from a wide variety of influences. Oh, yes. But when you say eclectic, <laughs> I, I hear that you're making yeah, work yeah. that looks like it's all over the place. Mm. Okay. So we, we should workshop that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love, I love that this conversation has become like a way for, for you guys to, to talk, about, <laughs> yeah. talk out of the studio a little bit. Yeah. Um, I have just a couple more questions that I want to ask just to kind of start to wrap it up. Um, something that I really like is on the isometric website, you um, uh, say that you're a studio that promotes inclusion, equality, and progress. I really like that. And I, I wanted to look at those three words through the lens. And we kind of talked about this a little bit already, but through the lens of criticism and how is it possible or how could design criticism and design discourse also be inclusive and diverse and, you know, progressive in a way that it's not right now. 
I would say that these words are, of course, loaded, and they've been used mm-hmm. by other people. Mm-hmm. And so we struggled with, like, yeah. what, what do we do? And we just wanted one line, right? Yeah, like, yeah, I, yeah. We asked our clients yeah. to do it. And I think that we chose these words because of our own identity as you know, LGBT people of color. Mm-hmm. And that, like, why not? You know, if you're if you're going, <laughs> meaning if you're going uh-huh. to uh, to put a stake in the ground and say, you know, this is what we do, mm-hmm. and if if you're hiring us, is what you're going to get, right? And you're going to get con- a considerate lens on all kinds of problems, but particularly problems uh, that are challenging to solve around representation. And I, I think that people in the field, if if I understand correctly, and I've like met enough designers, they generally care about this stuff yeah. anyway. Yeah. But th- that the outlet for it has been get out the vote campaigns or sort of political posters and that has been like the tenor of mm-hmm. socially inclusive design and on the other hand the ideal model or what I learned at the Helen Hamlin Center at the Royal College of Art which is quote unquote inclusive design which is kind of like service design um, designing people with mm-hmm. disabilities mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. forth and I, th- I think that there is good intention in all of these different models and I'm not claiming that you know we don't we kind of take whatever works yeah and what I think makes sense is for a graphic design practice to understand the stakes of you know what everybody's particular project has on the, the culture that it affects and the outside world. Mm-hmm. And this is particularly true for schools like MICA, where there is an emphasis on, uh, well, what is the impact of what yeah. design is doing and how do I make it real, um, while not removing it from the sort of academic and critical context where you can take risk. Right. And, and I think that... Uh, that, that's, I think that's a really positive thing, and I think that that should be the model that's promoted everywhere. Yeah, yeah. I think that schools that have an overemphasis on um, getting people jobs and uh, training them with enough formal skill to be rigorous in that way need to think carefully about their history and their, sort of, you know, their context courses, their introduction to graphic design. Mm-hmm. I think it needs to be more than just you know, looking at visuals and analyzing what their role is in history, but also mm-hmm. mining what does it mean for us today? How can we be invested yeah. in uh, you know, what we read in the paper? Mm-hmm. How can that translate to uh, a level of, um, of self-scrutiny about the discipline? Yeah, I think one of the challenges when we chose to put that on the website was what if people think that we're not ser- serious designers? And that is a hmm. real risk because when people think of social design, they usually think of post-it notes and you know right, bad typography. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are the kinds of images that are conjured. But we really do believe that all design is social. Um, that graphic design is an exploration of uh, you know a questioning of the human endeavor and something that informs back on you know how we view ourselves and how we interact with others. And something as simple as a typographic choice and scale and color can sway people in different directions right, and the right. right choice of words. And so we think, you know, all design is social, and that's kind of our, I guess, our sure. thesis. So that's, <laughs> no, that's like Paula Scherer's thesis. Like, she literally gave a presentation that's called All Design is Social <laughs> as a way of sort of refuting claims that, okay, she works with Citibank, does that mean that she's evil? Like, of course not. Right, you know, right, like, right. It's utterly ridiculous. And, and it's uh, this black and white, like, you know, very juvenile yeah. way of looking yeah. at things. Although, like, so I would say that all design is social, true. But not all design is socially inclusive. Not all design oh, is socially progressive. Mm, yeah. and, and that's why we chose the words that we did. You know, oh, inclusion, yeah. equality, progress. These are ways that we want to affect society with yeah. design, yeah. right? And yeah. that doesn't mean that we're not open to sort of people who have very conservative values or Republicans. Like, we work with them. Those are part of our, our body of work as well. And we take pride in that. The ability to reach across these lines seriously mm-hmm. and to have real discussions and to create fruitful design responses that are not a closed loop meaning mm. your design uh, doesn't it have to compel everybody one two it doesn't have to have a singular point of view mm-hmm. as a form of artistic production i think we should just be frank that it is a kind of art <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is it, it opens it up to subjectivity it opens up itself up to ambiguity ambivalence right? it can be all these things why does it have to be any narrow thing? Right, right. And that is the beauty. <laughs> and, yeah. and so there has been so much uh, critical discourse around like 
uh, how subjective is it? How objective is it? You know, like why these uh, like the, and and the desire to superimpose semiotic theory in that way that kind of forces it into a box. And I would say, we, what we believe is true critique continually opens yeah. the imagination. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It continually opens what the possibilities of design could be. And yeah. uh, and it has to be informed by uh, a link to how design is produced. So this is the final point I really wanted to make. That so often I think we're afraid of talking about the economics of how design is produced. Not just uh, sort of um, like the economic conditions more broadly, but the specific circumstances around how you get a design sold to a committee of people, to individuals, uh, mm -hmm. I feel like that is not part of the critical discourse. But I think it is critical because... Yeah, because that's interesting. Because yeah. um, what we're, I think we're afraid of, and many fields are afraid of, is becoming crass and commercial. Mm -hmm. But you risk that more if you hide uh, the way to sell really compelling design to an yeah. audience, right? Like, and uh, it's better, I think, to be frank and open about it. So Paula Scher and Michael Beirut are, and Armin Vitt are really good models of this. But Armin even talks about how he builds his clients and how much his studio yeah. earns a year. Yeah. I think um, I don't think everybody has to be so frank and so no. open, but I would like the discipline to move in that direction more because as young designers, particularly people who are not from an elite background, mm -hmm. um, who don't have a whole lot of family capital supporting us uh, or any, um, who are basically self-sustaining, had to build the practice on the ground, what we lack most is a network of people we can rely on for questions. Right, right. Like we can turn to our mentors, and sometimes they'll, they'll give us really thoughtful responses, but they had a different journey, mm -hmm. right? Among peers uh, our age, 20s, 30s, who uh, you know, have to try to make it in this field, which is competitive, which is uh, you know, un always under uh, sort of economic threat, <laughs> uh, always feels really transient, how can we um, you know, support each other in ways that elevate our critical discourse and also open up um, economic opportunities for each other. Mm -hmm. More than just finding each other jobs, telling like, how do you convince the client to do this? Yeah, yeah. And, and how do you bill? You know, how do you make sure right. they pay you? you know, right. uh, how do you, uh, what do you incorporate as? These are all questions that basically yeah, are taken yeah. completely for granted. Right. And, and uh, uh, I, I think that that's really important to the discussion of design critique as well so yeah it's true and that's uh, something that uh, architects have a really hard time with because it requires so much more capital to build a building so they are very uncomfortable uncomfortable talking about that and related to what you said is and I think you mentioned this how do you convince committees or mm -hmm. people to do a certain project and how do you uh, uh, how do you shape the forces of power to you know get a job in the first place you know and things are changing. Uh, there's a lot of startups and there's a lot of nonprofits who are beginning to become aware of the value of design. So there's a lot to kind of talk about and learn. That that actually kind of you started to actually lead into what my last question was, and we talked about this a little bit. But I wanted to end with just what are issues, topics, things that should be a part of the design discourse, both, and that can be both like within you know us as the profession but also that you know the general kind of population should kind of be talking about or learning about as it relates to design and so i think i mean i think like the business side of things and the economic side of things is actually really well, fascinating and AIJ, frankly uh has tried like they haven't yeah. gained confidence but it's really expensive to attend mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. and so I, I, not no problem with that i think like great I just think we need an alternative yeah, as well. Yeah, totally. Uh, or at least an alternative, either within or without that institution that helps us uh, sort of craft what the next generation of designers uh, should look forward to mm -hmm. and to create meaningful mentorship opportunities that are more than ladder climbing. Like, what happens after you stop caring about, like, awards? We don't generally enter awards competitions. Yeah. We don't, uh, and primarily because, like, we don't want to be under the threat of that as well. Yeah, Meaning, yeah, like, have yeah. to put I'm, ourselves emotionally out there mm -hmm. to just, like, you know, like uh, have our design evaluated without the context of why mm -hmm. it was produced the way it was. Yeah, And, yeah, yeah. and AIGA I, has tried to remediate this problem by, you know, uh, 
in what I feel is a misguided direction of asking about the design's function and its results and its, you know, and, oh, right. and, and that addressed a lot of controversy as well because designers were then saying, well, what about just formal pleasure and like, mm-hmm. you know, like <laughs> what, what if we, yeah. instead of thinking about um, awards schemes and, um, and these kind of things are revenue drivers, right? What if the revenue drivers were platforms for people to share their ideas and to, to participate in this um, conversation without like huge exorbitant fees? If it would just spread more widely mm-hmm. and to address topics that are of real concern to people who are in the minority. For yeah. example, AIGA did try to do an event about like uh, about Black Lives Matter or some, something about you know race and. And mm-hmm. design, but the problem was they made it like an online event, and it was really poorly <laughs> advertised. Gray Advertising had this event where, uh, famously, um, where uh, I think they had like a panel on black graphic design. Or I'm not sure. I'm sorry, that might be a mistake. Don't quote <laughs> <help> me. <laughs> it, we can cut this uh, part out. <laughs> it, 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 may, it may have been. Uh, I'm not sure which advertising agency did it, but then they had a, a, a Twitter picture of all white people sitting. In oh the yeah, I know what you're talking about. And, I and, I saw this, and I just like we need, we need to be more self-aware as a discipline. Yeah. I don't mean that everybody should sort of you know be socially engaged in that, in that right, kind of right. way. But yeah, just I know like, what you mean. I think that like there are black graphic designers, there are mm-hmm. Asian graphic designers who don't fit the model of sort of passive people. <laughs> there are um, Latino graphic designers. There are Designers that come from all walks of life, and I think that you know we need to provide a platform that lifts people up mm-hmm. and gives them the opportunity to have their voice heard, if only to make design more robust, yeah. and more fruitful. Yeah. You know, when uh, Lucille Tanazis you know, created her design, uh, when Rebecca Mendez started to make a stake um, in the world of graphic design, those were beautiful moments because all of a sudden there was a blooming of a whole new way of mm-hmm. aesthetically approaching questions critically approaching questions. In order for critical discourse to grow, you need that level of difference. You need that level of uh, openness. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that we should demand that design yeah. uh, embrace that level of intellectual openness. And, and that, yeah, will, that will give us you know, a, a greater platform for, um, for truly having a sense of disciplinary inquiry and substance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, I can add a little bit to that. I think that uh, graphic design in particular can uh, really affect the way that institutions work. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of uh, a lot of the continuity politically that 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 exists in the United States is the way in which institutions ensure that you know there are checks and balances, and design helps articulate um, the, this kind of democratic. Uh, function of these institutions. So just thinking about how, you know, um, a, new, a visual identity or messaging for a contemporary institution might be different from IBM or, you know, one of the older kind mm-hmm. of mid 20th century ones and how that affects their very, the, the way in which they view themselves and the way they function. Then another aspect is how people's stories are told. Um, you know, yeah. how do we humanize uh, uh, you know, undocumented immigrants, or right. how do we humanize Syrian refugees and tell their stories? And graphic design has a huge role to play in that, to create this kind of empathy right. and connection. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we shape digital worlds? I think that yeah. there, there are these bubbles that people live in, and design. People can. Yesterday we saw in the Masters review. You know, uh, how can we uh, begin to question some of the digital realms that and uh, yeah. groups that yeah. exist and facilitate connection. And then finally, uh, this idea of physical space. You know, how do we give uh, people a sense of the physical reality of, mm-hmm. of a place where people can come and interact and learn from each other? And I think uh, as we move forward into the 21st century, that's going to be a really important thing for designers to do. Yeah. Uh, you can, Of course, you can't do all of that at once, but I think a, a broader awareness of that as we approach every project is important because we have so much power to shape the work of the clients yeah. that, uh, that work with us. So when you talk about um, the Harvard professor you had that, who said about you know, design can change longing to belonging, right? Right, and, hmm. and that, that's kind of like a, a cute little linguistic trope, but yeah. I, I really feel like that undergirds so much of what we care about. 
there, yeah. I, think, I think there is a desire for everybody to feel like they belong and that uh, their voice matters. Mm-hmm. And that when that's resisted, it leads to dire consequences, as we're going to see in the last election. Right. And, and that right. Uh, if we are going to make for progress, <laughs> yeah. then we need to listen to those voices who have felt that they have been unheard. Yeah. And instead of just you know blaming them for their ignorance. Yeah. I think that that is a perfect way to, to wrap this up. This has been so interesting. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for your time and for talking with me. This was great. <laughs> this episode was recorded on December 13th, 2016 in Baltimore, Maryland. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter at Surface Podcast. You can find us on iTunes and SoundCloud and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.